the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on August 14th, 2018 at Wellfleet Preservation Hall in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme was temptation. Let's please give a big welcome to the stage to Meredith. I was the kid at the top of the high dive who had to stay up there the entire swim session because I was too terrified to jump off. You see, I grew up in one of these Jewish families where uh, we weren't encouraged to do things that involved physical risk. <laughs> we stayed to nice, safe, indoor activities like the Boston Symphony, the Boston Ballet, the Museum of Fine Arts, and so on and so forth. So consequently, I became something of a chicken. Uh, I shunned amusement park rides for most of my life, except when I took my daughter to Harry Potter World, I told her in advance, I won't be riding any of the rides with you just to let you know. But in the end, I so wanted to share the experience that I said, pony up and just do it. And I came out white knuckled and pretty nauseous. <laughs> and that was the last time I told her I will ever take an amusement park ride, except for maybe the merry-go-round in Central Park. Anyway, I found myself with my family, my husband, my two daughters, in Switzerland, where we used to go every summer so the girls and we could visit their Oma, my husband's mother. We were in this beautiful alpine town that we love very much. And finally this summer, the girls were finally tall enough to go on the zip line. It was called the Adventure Forest. Now, we had done the little zip line uh, introductory course the year or two before, and it was, it was pretty good. I was pretty good. You only had to climb up about yay high, and it wasn't so bad. I learned to clip on and clip off, and so I said, I'm ready for this. I'm gonna do the big course with the family. The day came, we got there, we all got suited up, and then my husband said, not feeling so well. So he bailed out, just like he did tonight. <laughs> I was hoping someone could use the ticket. Well, I wanted to be the model of female empowerment for my two daughters, who were maybe 11 and 14 at the time. And besides, somehow, God knows how, I found myself towards the front of the line for our group, and there were all these people behind. So if I hesitated like I did on the high dive, it just wasn't going to work. I said, Meredith, don't overthink it. Just go. So up the rope ladder I go. And I get to the first, you know, platform, and there's a swingy thing, and I'm crawling across it, and I get to the next one, and I clip on, clip off, and I, my heart is pounding, but I hear my kids, they're right behind me, and we're going along, and I'm thinking, you're doing well, you're doing well, it's only like 20 feet up, don't look down, you're fine. But behind me, I kept hearing this French family, a father, and two or three kids. And there was a little kid who kept going, le grand combat, le grand combat. I didn't know what the heck he was talking about, but every so often, every 10 minutes, où est le grand combat, où est le grand combat? And I knew it was a big something, but honestly, it had been since high school, I couldn't remember. And honestly, I really didn't care. Going along, going along, going along. And then I discovered what was the grand combat? After about an hour and a half of Tarzaning it through the trees, really successfully, I might add, I lost track of the kids. Somehow, they'd gotten ahead of me, and I was back there with the French father and his kids, 
trotting along, and I'm wandering around the forest going, where are they, where are they? And the older girl, I finally find her. I said, where have you been? She said, I went over the gorge. You what? <laughs> the gorge? I said, that's the Grand Combin. So meanwhile, the French father is sweating bullets because he realizes his, his kids are going over the gorge. I said, where's Lila? And she said, she's about to go over the gorge. And I go, oh my God, I've heard stories where kids get stuck in the middle. Oh, horrible. Anyway, I'm running, running out of the adventure forest to the big bridge. It's this huge bridge, big trees, deep gorge. It's magnificent. And then there's this line. You can hear it. And there she was, my little Disney princess, <laughs> going across all the way. And I'm taking the picture, and the French father is there, wringing his hands. I said, oh my god, my kids both did it. And at that moment, I said, I'm feeling so good, and I'm so proud of them. They're doing something I could never do, that I was tempted to do it myself. <laughs> but I didn't. <laughs> Eric J. Yeah. So for reference, this story takes place between 9,000 and 17,000 feet above sea level, which would be about three and a quarter miles straight up in the air from here. So on my 40th birthday, I decided to give myself a present of a trip to Nepal where I had always wanted to go, but I had been hesitant because of the altitude. And I'd been sick once as a teenager in Switzerland, even not going over any gorgeous. <laughs> and so I was a little bit apprehensive, but I figured I better do it or I'm never gonna do it. So on the plane on the way to Kathmandu, I met a couple of guys and we decided to share a hotel together the first night. And when they learned it was my birthday, they said, oh, we're gonna take you out for your birthday and we got a party. And so we went out and we started drinking and Kathmandu isn't really up that high, it's in a valley. So I think it's a little bit higher than Denver, but I had three beers and I was totally wasted. And I thought to myself like, hey, this is great. But at the same time, it was kind of like, this might be a little dangerous. So I made a note like, don't drink too much. And the next day I flew up higher and you know, I, people had told me that one way to combat altitude sickness or possible altitude sickness is to walk down on the first day and then walk back up and you might get acclimated. I was by myself, I didn't go with a group or a guide, which, you know, which was fine because it was pretty clear which trail to take. And I start walking down and you know, everybody's walking on this trail because there's only one trail. So a lot of school children and farmers and yaks, like so many yaks. And each time I pass somebody, they would come up to me like this, like, you know, saying, are you by yourself? And I would nod yes, and they would say, oh, you have no friends? <laughs> and, you know, the altitude kind of fucks with your head a little bit, and I started thinking, like, it started becoming like this existential crisis, like, I have no friends, I have no friends! <laughs> And so the first person I saw who also seemed to be trekking, I like ran by themselves, I ran up to and I started trying to make conversation. And it turns out this person was a dentist from Kathmandu and she said she actually was not by herself, she was with her parents, but they were on horseback so they were up ahead. And that her father had been in the army so he was very familiar with the area because it's close to the border with China and so there's a lot of Nepalese military up there. So we get to this town and sort of on the outskirts, there's a staging area where her parents have gotten off the horses. And so, you know, as a surprise to me, she introduces me and asks if it's okay if, we join, if I join them for lunch, which was really nice. And her father kind of looks at me, um, you know, in an unapproving way. But, um, 
but you know, finally agrees that I should come for lunch. And we walk into this town, and as soon as we hit the middle of town, this marching band comes out, and there's a big banner in the middle of town and across the main street saying, welcome back, retired Brigadier General Geary. And the mayor of town comes running out of his house and brings us in and says, oh, I prepared this special lunch for you. I went out in the forest and picked mushrooms myself for it this morning, and it's great. And we're sitting there, and this town is famous for having apple orchards, which you'll have to look it up because I don't have time to talk about how it's possible, but apple trees can grow at 9,000 feet above sea level. And, they, and I know they distill apple brandy there. So after lunch, the, um, the general and the mayor of the town are sitting around, and they're not drinking brandy, which I never would have done. They're drinking cider that the mayor, again, says he made himself out of recycled plastic, in recycled plastic water bottles. And I'm sitting there, and they're talking about all kinds of things. And I want to be part of this conversation, because like, when else am I going to have a conversation with like a retired brigadier general and the mayor of a town in Nepal? And it seems like I'm going to have to drink if I want to be part of this conversation. But it's just cider, right? So I give in to the temptation. And it's fine, and we're talking about all kinds of things, and they're asking me how in the US you can have a leader who's of a different party than Congress, and you know, it's, and we're talking about the Chinese infringing on Nepal, and everything's going great. The general's like knocking back these ciders, and I'm keeping up with him, and I feel so good, and nothing's wrong until I stand up. <laughs> or I should say, try to stand up. Now, to her credit, the general's wife automatically senses that something's wrong and handles it in the most elegant way possible. She looks at me and she looks at the mayor and she says, you know, we've had a long day and some of us might be a little tired, so could we find hotel rooms maybe for a couple hours where we can relax before we go back? And the mayor says, of course, I own a hotel. You can stay, you can, I'll give you rooms at my hotel. So we all get rooms at his hotel. And on the way into the room, the general who's kind of warmed up to me, I don't know if he has his arm around me, but he's kind of talking to me like we're old friends, and he hands me his business card and it says, retired Brigadier General Gary on it. So I still have that. And I get to the room, I take a quick shower, doesn't really do anything, the room's a little stuffy, so I go out into the hallway and the wind really blows in the afternoon there. And so I sit, and the, the hallway is open on either end, so there's a good breeze going, and it's hitting me in the face, and I sit down on a bench in the hallway, and I cannot move. My body has never rebelled against me like that before or since. And when I think back on it, I do think that, like, it's possible that, like, I was, that there was, like, something seriously going on medically. And I guess, like... <laughs> I had that sense in my head because I remember there sitting there thinking, like, either, um, either I'll be okay, I'll survive this, or I won't. <laughs> but either way, it was totally worth it. <laughs> Let's welcome Jill Teitelman to the stage. Jill. Um, does anyone here speak Chinese or, or know how to pronounce Chinese names by any chance? So if there was a name XIXI, would you know how that's pronounced? Very common name in China. I didn't know that. Um, so my, I was living in Boston, and my son was gone, and um, I had a house that had a lot of space in it. And I decided that... Um, I was tempted in two ways. One way I was tempted was to really indulge in my solitude and my space. And I tried that for a while. And then I thought, well, I'm tempted to see what would happen if I rented out a room. Uh, I rented out, but, I, but not for too long, not too short, because I don't want to deal with a lot of people, but not too long, because I don't want anybody to actually really live there. <laughs> uh, I live there. It's my space. Um, it worked out really well. It turns out in Boston, there's lots of young, incredible people in their 20s and 30s, and they're coming from all over the world, and they have money, and they want to do stuff in Boston. And it was really interesting. I had two or three, a couple of guys. I wasn't always there. Sometimes I was away. 
And I got an email from um, a woman who was apparently Chinese. She was, um, it was quite a well-written email. There were mistakes in it, but it was amazing that it was so well-written. And she was not just Chinese, she was um, older, and she was um, an author, and she had made a film, and she had this really fascinating um, background, fascinating. Uh, and I thought, wow, this is really gonna be amazing. So um, it was a dark night in February, and uh, she arrived. Um, and the, the, the person that brought her to me was, was the one who had written the email. He was the one that could actually write English and speak English. Uh, she was very, she's actually had published several books. I checked her out in the Brookline Library. There are Chinese books there. Uh, and, but she, when she got to my door, she literally could only say hello, and she, I, she could count to 10. <laughs> and she was here to do some fellowship, and she was going to be researching, and she was connected to something at Boston University, and she was gonna be very busy, and there she was in my house, and we could only communicate. My friend reminded me today, I was telling, saying I was gonna tell the story, she had an iPad, and so I would say, hello, and she would look it up, and she would say, she would try to use the iPad. I mean, really no English. And so um, I was on semester break. I was teaching, and so I said, all right, you know, this is my job now. So I marched her down to an English class. Uh, I, I marched her, we were on this, I showed her how to take the subway, and I took her downtown. I found her a class, an English class, and I still could not figure out, she was, it was so mysterious. It was, I took her to the bank. I found a bank with a Chinese person who spoke Chinese, Mandarin, so that she could open a bank account. And when she gave the check to the bank guy, I kind of glanced down and she wrote this enormous check. It was like $17,000 and she was only supposed to stay seven weeks. And I thought, what, who is she? <laughs> what, she told me that she was married to a policeman I don't know what that means in China. It could mean a lot of things. She had an 18-year-old son, and it was very mysterious. Also, communication was a little tough. Her English was not really improving. She was not good at languages. Um, but it was wonderful to have her. She had friends, and they spoke pretty good English, and they came over, and they cooked a lot of really good food. And we went to some plays, and we, we really got along really well. And she was a lot younger than me, but she called me little sister. We had this little joke, big sister, little sister. I learned all about China, and a lot about China, actually, or this demographic of Chinese people that come to Boston uh, to get some kind of degree in some university at Boston. So when they go back to China, they're set. You know, a, a course at BC, Boston College, whatever. Uh, they all had sports cars. They they took me out to a few lavish meals and gave me gifts. It was really lovely. Um, she she finally moved out, and I uh, she said she she was working on a book, and she moved in. We kind of lost touch. Um, then I had a book. I wrote a book, and I had an opening, and she came to it, and that was about five years ago. Um, we never understood anything about her except that when she came to my book reading, she came with a man. And she came up to me and she said, this is my boyfriend, and I didn't want to tell you, but I was having an affair with an American man, and um, I just didn't want to tell you, I was too ashamed. You know, I left my husband and my son in China. And that was mysterious and fascinating and everything, and that was five years ago. This morning, <laughs> I got an email from Shishi. XI, XI, which I didn't know how to say it until she arrived. Uh, she is, her play is opening off, off Broadway <laughs> on the Upper East Side on September 6th. She wrote a play about the Second World War and it's called Flying Tigers, something about flying tigers. Some, she did all this research. You know, I'm still trying to be a writer. I was teaching her how to say hello she has a play on Off-Broadway. <laughs> nice ending. <laughs> oh, can we please have to the stage, James. Yeah. Hello. 
Do you see that bathroom? It's nice. No, really, it's nice. I'm really glad you chose me fourth or fifth, because last time I was last, and I may have a drinking problem. Anyway. <laughs> What's the thing? I just had, you know, I'm the kind of a storyteller, I have to start where I'm at, okay? I always get a little anxious before I do this stuff. And uh, my wife said, oh, you know, Ted gave, us, gave me a joint of this medical marijuana that's supposed to really chill you out. Just <laughs> better, better, better than any drug he ever got from a shrink. Okay. It's not working. Um, I should start the story. Okay. Um, I went to this hippie school in Vermont. There's a hundred kids living on a hundred acre farm. Um, there were no rules. There was two rules. You couldn't hurt anybody and you couldn't smoke in the, in any of the buildings. And if you did break one of those rules, you didn't get kicked out. You just had to go live in the real world for a semester. And that's what I did. The story, getting, I decided to get together with some friends to go down to Florida, my girlfriend and these two other friends. It's a long story, that was a three month journey for another story. Anyway, I'm in Florida, I end up there homeless, I got no money, I got no shoes, and my girlfriend completely blew me off. So I was just, you know, sleeping in the parks, blah, 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 and there was this pizza joint that I used to go to when I could scrape together some money for a slice. And there was this guy named Vinny Pagano who ran the place. And, you know, we kind of, you know, we just kind of started connecting a little bit. And one day he offered me a job. So I started working there. Cash, well, Vinny was, uh, you know, a family guy. <laughs> He weighed about 300 pounds. He carried a nickel-plated 38 on an ankle holster. One night he got drunk. He was making, the place was closed, we were all sitting around. He threw a pizza up in the air and he shot it. <laughs> now Vinny worked for a guy named Johnny. I know, it's just like, as these guys were right out of The Sopranos, central casting. Johnny lived in Coral Gables. So I'm working the cash register all day, and all this cash is, I don't know, the slice was, we're talking $1980. It was like a dollar maybe, I don't know. And just cash, and I got tempted. So I was stealing, but in order to justify it, I said, I'm only gonna take $6 a day because then I could go check out this jazz joint down the street. So anyway, this went on for a while, a month or two. One day I walk in to go to work, Vinny's there. <laughs> he says, hey, Jimmy. He goes, where did I, I'm going to grab an apron. He says, hey, sit down. Okay, you want something to eat? No, I'm good. Something to drink. Go get a Coke, go get a Coke, all right. We get a Coke, I come back. He goes, what do you think, I'm fucking stupid? <laughs> what, what's that been? I know what you've been doing. You've been stealing from me. Dude, I was shitting in my pants. I was, what was I, 17, something, 16, 17, I don't know. And um, he said, look, go outside smoke a cigarette, and then come back, we're going over to Johnny's. And I'm just like, in Coral Gables. <laughs> so I go outside, 
all my homeless friends are out there, and I'm sitting. I'm like, I'm like crying. I'm freaking out. They're like, "What's up, dude?" I'm like, "Ready, run out, still. I'm gonna go to go to Johnny Coral Gale. I'm dead." <sighs> so, I come back in, and then uh, he says, "All of a sudden, he's in this kind of light mode." And it was, <laughs> he says, uh, you got a lot of balls, kid. I thought you were gone. I figured you were in the wind. I swear, this is right out of the fucking uh, Goodfellas with Paul Sorvino and Ray Liotta. When he gives him the cash and says, no, I got to turn my back on you. It was exactly, he, he pulled out some cash. I took out what you stole. He gave it to me. Now get the fuck out. And I went out, the next, I bought a ticket home that day, but the next day I went back, I had to talk to Vinny and make it right if I could. Because I really liked him and he really liked me, you know? And I really got it that I fucked up bad. And uh, you know, the moral of the story, don't steal from the mob. Jerry, welcome Jerry to the stage. So uh, last week I told a story about how I was a sleazy weasel. So today I want to round out the portrait and tell you about how I'm also a bald-faced liar. So about 25 years ago, my wife and I and my really good friend Scott Wilson, he was actually just down here yesterday, um, we started an art museum in our basement. Scott pulled these paintings out of the trash one night. We hung them on the wall, and that's it, how it began. Now, five years, five years ago, this is 25 years ago, five years ago, the London Times published a list of the top 50 museums in the world, art museums. And the only Boston art museum that made that list was ours, <laughs> the Museum of Bad Art. This is a true story. So anyway, this thing started at, at a party. We got these paintings. Scott started bringing them. The house started filling up. And then we decided to have a party. So we took all these, these paintings we had, and we wrote little captions and gave them titles, and we had a party. Everybody came. Everybody loved it. And, uh, and, and, this, and the thing started moving. So um, then people started calling us and hearing about it. So um, we realized we were kind of cramped by our physical space, which was the basement of our house. We couldn't bring this important collection to the larger world. And we were, trying to, we were grappling with this. Now, this was the early 1990s. And a technological thing happened in the early 1990s. There were PCs, and they all had little floppy disks that stored a little bit of information. And suddenly, there was this thing called the CD-ROM that came out. And it was thousands of times more data could be on this CD-ROM than the, the little floppies. And all of a sudden, people thought that this was going to be a new media, new f that we could, that there were going to be stores selling these CD-ROMs with all kinds of content and this and that. And, um, you know, always want to, like, be ready to exploit anything at the drop of the hat. We thought, all right, we're going to use this thing, and we're going to build the Virtual Museum of Bad Art. And we recruited all of our friends, all of my family, everybody we knew, and we made this this fictional, very lar large museum in, in Boston. And we had, and basically, we interviewed all of our friends and said, you're in this museum, and what are you doing, who are you there? And then we took who, whatever they said, and they said, you know, you say, well, I'm, I work in the gift shop. We say, okay, we need a gift shop. And you say, oh, I, I'm just visiting, oh, we're in the gallery. So this floor plan takes shape, and then we start going around Boston, and we find in places, we, oh, we find a gift shop we just needed for like a half hour. And we put you in there, and then we take pictures around. <laughs> And we started putting this thing together. So this thing came together over about three months, and there was about 100 people in the cast, and it was this huge floor plan, and this thing actually exists. Um, so when it was done, we sent it out to a bunch of reviewers, and the reviews were fabulous. 
some of the people thought it was the funniest thing they ever saw and wildly inventive, whatever. And the other half of the people thought it was the most stupid thing that they had ever seen and just completely ridiculous. And our favorite quote of all this is we had this guy who absolutely it pissed him off, he hated it or whatever, and he ended the review with complete waste of plastic. So we just love that. So now, um, now we were trying to get it into stores, so we needed a cover. And uh, so we decided we were going to have in the cover, we were going to feature that as the big quote on the back. We're going to different quotes, but complete waste of plastic. But we needed a picture for this. So we had this idea, we were going to get all the people who were in the thing, and we were going to take all the paintings, and uh, down, downtown Boston by the uh, Prudential Center, there's the uh, Christian Science Center. It's a big plaza, and there's a big reflecting pool. Very, you know, it's a perfect place. We thought, we'll have all these people, you know, 100 people holding paintings and get this thing by the reflection pool. So we tell everybody, Friday night, 6 o'clock, you know, be down there, this thing, and uh, all this stuff's going on. And then I think, like, I wonder if he can actually, if there's any rules about this. So I go and I check, and it turns out, like, you're not allowed to take commercial pictures without permission of the Christian science. So we could try in, like, the next 24 hours to get that permission, or we could just wing it. And I was tempted. I was tempted to actually go the route of trying and to get permission. We said, no, that's not to happen. So instead, we all go down there, we bring a van full of these paintings down, we pull up, we start unloading them on the sidewalk, and as soon as we start unloading them, these guys sort of step out, and it turns out there's, uh, now who knew this, the Christian scientists have undercover policemen. <laughs> it was kind of cool. These guys, just things suddenly come up, and we can tell they're watching us and scoping us up, and, and just these two guys. So all of our friends start arriving. We've stacked all these things, but we're on the sidewalk, public sidewalk. That's, they, you know, no problem. So everybody starts arriving. We get everybody there. The photographer comes. We've got a stepladder. We get all this stuff. And we tell everybody, okay, look, there's these guys, and they're scoping us out. So what we're going to do is we're going to give the high sign. We're going to run. Everybody picks up a painting. We're all going to run right down there. You hold the painting up. We're going to, the, the photographer's going to get the ladder. He's going to climb up the ladder, snap the pictures. Ready? Okay, everybody, very casual. Go. So everybody picks these things up, and like soon as before we've even, before we've even picked up the paintings, these guys like come out and like, oh, blah, 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 and you, you know, as soon as we step on the grounds, what's going on here? No photography allowed in the Christian science. And, and I said, what are you talking about? There's, there's people taking pictures all over the place, because there are tourists. And they said, well, no commercial pictures. And I said, well, this isn't a commercial picture. Well, what is this? And I said, well, we're just doing this thing where we get this project. It's an art museum in our basement. It's, these are just our friends. And well, this isn't a commercial thing. You're not going to sell anything, whatever. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> and. Um, and he's, and he, well, uh, are you sure about that? And I'm going, absolutely not. And I'm, my friend, no, no, absolutely <laughs> So anyway, my wife is there. We've only been married about two or three years. The guy lets us take the picture. We get this beautiful picture. It was on the cover, um, and that was it. But my wife was stunned. And afterwards, she said, you just looked that man in the eye and told him a bald-faced lie. And I said, yes, I did. And... Uh, <laughs> And she said, I didn't know you were capable of that. And I said, well, you know, we've been married three years. It's kind of nice that, like, I still have a mysteries to discover. <laughs> Thank you. All right. First time storyteller, Dan Halbert. Welcome to the stage, Dan. Big round of applause. Woohoo! All right, so uh, this story is about the time I was on a hijacked bus, okay? And it's from 1978, so that's 40 years ago. And if you subtract 20, 2018 minus 40 is 1978, so that's a long time ago. If you subtract 40 from 1978, that's 1938. So that's halfway in between. 1938 was a very long time ago, okay? But at that time, uh, buses, I mean, there were hijackings, and some people got killed, some people wanted money, some people just wanted to go to Cuba, you know. I think they, the Cuba people stopped after a while. But anyway, I was a, I had just moved to Berkeley. I was a new graduate student, and I've never been to California before. 
And I was, California was supposed to be this kind of paradise place, but when I got there in 1978, first there were flash floods and mudslides, and then there was an earthquake, and then there were fires in the hills, and then uh, the mayor and Harvey Milk got assassinated. So it was sort of scary, and it was a little like hell rather than paradise, a little bit. I mean, I was having an okay time, but I wasn't sure. And so I also, I was on a, I graduated and I had a stipend, so I didn't have a lot of money, but I would go back and visit people on the East Coast where I went to college, and it was cheaper to fly out of Oakland Airport, which is sort of this also-ran airport, and they were trying very hard to get business. They had these billboards, 444-4444, that was a phone number you could call up and get any airline <laughs> out, of, out of Oakland. So it was very, very distinctive, and I called 444-4444, and I got like a World Airways flight back to Boston, or I don't even remember where I was going. Anyway, so I came back, and I had like a backpack of clothes, not much else. And I had to get back to Berkeley. Oakland is just south of Berkeley, it's adjacent. And BART, which was this new transit system, ran between them, but it didn't go straight to the airport. You had to get from the airport to BART, and it wasn't that far, and they had this special bus called Air BART that you could go with, but it cost 75 cents, and it was, went direct to the BART station. So I didn't want to pay that much because I was on a stipend. You could take a regular city bus. And this whole business about BART, there were all these like horrible puns. Like there was a shuttle that went from the Berkeley campus to BART and it was called Humphrey Go BART. It was a really <laughs> terrible name. Okay. So I said I could take the city bus and it takes 20 minutes instead of 10 minutes and it stops some other places. But hey, I save a few dimes and I can spend that money on something else. So I, there's this bus and it's empty and there are these two guys sitting outside of the bus. So I get on the bus to wait, the city bus. And eventually these two guys who are sitting outside, they get on the bus and they sit in the front and we're all kind of in the front. There's nobody else on the bus. And they're having a great old time telling each other jokes and stuff. And then one of them looks at the other and he says, hey, look at this bus, let me go play with it. So he goes and starts flipping switches on, up in the, he sits in the driver's seat and he starts flipping the switches and making the signs change and everything. Kind of strange, and I didn't like that. And he said, hey, the key is in the bus. So he says, I'm gonna, let's take this bus. And I was like, I'm the only other person on the bus, okay? <laughs> so I said, hey, just get off. But he closes the door and he starts the bus. And he starts zooming out of the airport, right? And it's like this access road. It's like a mile and a half off to the freeway or whatever. And he's zooming along, driving, careening around and around and around. And that guy says, you can just let me off anywhere. That's what I said, okay? <laughs> you know, I don't really care. I'll walk. I don't really care. You know, just let me off. And then they spot in the distance. They say, hey, there's a lady waiting at that bus stop up there. <laughs> so they zoom up to the bus stop and the guy stops short and the doors open and the lady gets on the bus and now it's like I'm trying to get off maybe but maybe I should tell her about this thing and then he turns around the guy in the driver's seat and he unzips his jacket and he's wearing a bus driver's uniform and he says to me 35 cents please So that's the story. I guess I was the temptation. Can we have Bernard? Bernard. Oh, Bernard with the glasses and the jewel tone. Woo! All right. This story takes us back in 1983. I just got to New York. I was a greenhorn. I was 22 years old, and it was my first job after college, and uh, college was in Munich. So it was quite a transition. I was working in a little architectural office in Soho, and if you know New York, at that time, Soho was really different than it is now. It was pretty edgy, and I had always, since I, work, I, I lived in Tribeca, I had only like a 10-minute walk, and at lunch break, I often went home. 
So I did that on one Thursday, maybe in June. So I was there for maybe three or two months. And there were uh, always some choices where to go down. Uh, so I could go down Broadway or I could go down Mulberry Street or whatever. So that particular day, I choose to go up after lunch Broadway. And sometimes there were these guys, you know, with these little three things playing around. And I always ignored them. And I did well. And at that day, somebody came up to me and said, hey, you want to make some money? Uh, and he was really pushy. And uh, he almost dragged me in there. I said, okay, whatever, you know. Uh, let's go inside. So we went into this building and the front was kind of a souvenir shop, but it went deeper and I didn't even know that this building would be so deep. So it was one other store, another store. So we ended up in the very back and it got really dark and so there was this kind of counter and the guy said uh, something, you know, if you, if you, you we, we play this little game and uh, it's a, like a little lottery, but the chances are much higher for you. So if you give us, uh, let's say, $20, you know, you might make $200. So I was checking, and at that time I made $250 a week, so it was really not that much. So I thought, well, okay, I can risk $20. You know. So, and I gave him the dollars, and they did some kind of thing which I never really understood. And I said, oh, yeah, you won. Here, you get $200. Oh, wow, $200 is almost a week's pay. So um, then they said, well, if you want to reinvest, you know, <laughs> you get maybe $2,000, you know. And uh, I got already dollar signs in my eyes. And it, okay, I gave him the money, you know. And I lost. <laughs> of course. I lost, and they said, well, you know, um, what's your name, you know, and uh, well, we keep that here, and if you want to come back, you can win it back and double your win, you know, just bring another $400, and the chances are, the more you invest, the more chances you have to win, so I was, I was kind of doubtful, but on the other hand, I was also relieved that I had maybe a chance to win the money back. So I went, yeah, I was a greenhorn, I admit. So I went to work and I was nervous, you know, all work and uh, so, and at that time, uh, maybe you don't know, no ATM machines, banks closed at four o'clock, which was actually good for me. Um, so I was nervous and um, I was living alone and uh, the guys I worked for were friends of mine, so um, we did come sometimes uh, do things together. Anyway, I didn't tell anybody. I mean, there was almost nobody to tell, but I didn't tell them. So I went home and the next day was Friday and I went to the bank. I wrote a check to myself and got almost all the money I had in the bank saved, it was $400 or so. And my plan was after working there and the, you know, to go to California in the summer and uh, travel around a little bit. Anyway, so Friday noon came and I went up Broadway, I went to the place and said, here I am again, here's the money. So let me get $4,000 and um, I lost again. <laughs> I was so unhappy, but also they gave me another chance. <laughs> Unbelievable, you can make it. You know, and the, the, the money you will win will be so amazing. You know, it's gonna be $14,000, you know. Okay, so this was Friday and um, I spent the worst weekend ever because the bank was already closed and I didn't even have any more money. But I had a credit card which was my father gave to me for emergencies. So 
the whole weekend went on, you know, the good guy, well, you have to stop this, this is not going to get you anywhere, well, there's a lot of money working, waiting for you, you know, <laughs> just, you know, on the Monday morning, go with the credit card and get the money, you know, uh, your parents won't mind, you're crazy, you cannot do that, so, the weekend was between looking, you know, dreaming about all the money and driving through California in a rented convertible. And then on the other hand, like, ah, this is never going to work. Anyway, it was a terrible weekend. Monday morning, I went to work and I finally decided I had to talk to my boss and my friends. So I went to the office and said, I have to talk to you, I have to tell you something. I was totally embarrassed. And one of them is a very uh, calm guy, American. The other one was a high-tempered Argentinian Italian. <laughs> he said, we go there right now. Where is that place? I'm going to throw them out in the street and I'm going to call the cops. And that was the end of the story. <laughs> Welcome to the stage, Claire. Claire. So what brings me up here is the statement, when was the last time you did something for the first time? I've jumped out of plane once. I've done a triathlon once. I did caving for a year once. The other day, I took a lady out, a stranger that I didn't know, to lunch for three hours once. And now I'm up here once. <laughs> I can guarantee <laughs> this is going to be a once. So my story is about working in customer service. I, um, as a hobby, I uh, take passion in the outdoors. And I work for a company that sells uh, things to be outdoors, shoes, clothing, kayaks, all that kind of bikes. And I've been doing this for 20 years. But recently, I moved to a different company. And I work in footwear. Now, it's just like this. You see the men's shoes on this side, the women's shoes on this side, the kids over here, and there's hot lights wherever you are. No air conditioning. And I have this vest on, and then I have this little earpiece with everybody in the, all the employees saying, okay, who has this? Pick up line two. And I'm like feeling, oh my God, I'm turning in, I'm, I'm hallucinating. I can't, I can't take all these voices in my ear, and I just, wanna, I just wanna pull it out. Now, mind you, I have to put it back in. Got to keep it. It's raining outside. What happens when it rains? Everybody goes shopping. So there are three of us in footwear, and all of a sudden, all these people are coming in. 10 o'clock, everybody comes in. And, oh, I forgot to tell you, it's only my first week on this job. Right? So all these people are coming in. There's only three of us. Here is the entrance to where you get the, the shoes, right over here. People are coming up. Can I have these shoes? I want these shoes. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you gotta be kidding. You didn't, I didn't sign up for this. You know, I signed up for selling shoes really well. Well, I'm gonna take a deep breath because I got this customer. My hair is up in a ponytail. If I can find my hairband, which I don't have, but you can imagine, because I'm hot. It's hot. And this lady comes in. Oh, can I have these shoes, please? And I'm like, sure. Her husband's right there. He's fiddling around. And uh, she says to me, well, I have size 10 and a half feet. I have a bunion. I have flat feet. And I want these shoes that I had from two years ago. Can you find them for me? And I'm like, huh, yeah, sure. That's what we do. They, 
Merrill shoes, they always keep their old shoes. That's what you want, right? So she says, now, they have to fit perfectly. And in my head, I'm thinking, hmm, okay, perfectly. Excuse me, um, can I have these shoes too, please? And I'm thinking, huh, this lady, that's another customer coming up to me. So basically, during all this scenario, there are about 10 customers for one of us. Then you have the one in the background just standing behind this customer holding up her shoe. So I go in the back and I get a shoe that she wants, thinking that this is a Merrill that she wants. And I go back there and I said, oh my God, to my colleague, this is gonna be a doozy. I don't think I'm be able to handle this one. Can you come and cover for me? Like I'm like hoping that she was going to come out. Oh, by the way, I forgot something. If you are out in the audience, I apologize for telling our story because I really hope you are not here today. Because <laughs> this is quite the story. So I must have brought at least, at least, and I'm not joking, 15 pairs of shoes. And they're all piling up. Now, when you, for all of you who know try on shoes, right, you have to get, so she's 10 and a half, so I had to bring out 11. No, 10 and a half didn't work, now let's go try a 10. So I'm really getting like, I can't do this. This is really bothering me. I'm really stressed out. Customers are over here. They're shoving shoes in my face. And I know that this company, it's not Nordstrom's. We're not doing one-to-one -one service here. We're supposed to do one for multiple customers. And we are, when we're employed, we are given the lecture that you're not to stick with one customer. Um, you have to multitask. If you get stuck with a customer, say, oh, here, you try them on. I'll be right back. You know, all this kind of stuff. Meanwhile, this lady's straight fate like this. I really want this shoe. This is not the shoe. It was like this. And don't forget, I have bunions. And I'm thinking, and, and, and you know, I really didn't know what to do. So, af so after a couple minutes, I, I said, ah, I know what to do. Um, you know, I really know someone who can really help you out. She's a, sh a shoe guru. Why don't you go over there and why don't you help her out? So she, she goes over there, asks her for a shoe. I move on to another customer. Then after about 10 minutes, she comes up to me, straight face. And she says to me, I was going to go to your manager. I really wanted to complain about you. But I believe in telling you first why I'm upset. <laughs> Olivia brought the shoe out in one minute. I've been here an hour. You never showed me this shoe that Olivia showed me. At which point, I just happened to have taken a mindfulness class six, six weeks before. <laughs> And I'm breathing in, and I'm having my thought bubble, and I'm thinking, thought, emotion, anchor. And at which point I said, deep breathing, looked her in the eyes, took off my glasses, and I said, I'm really sorry I couldn't give you the customer service that you wanted. It's my first day here. Thank you. Can we please have Catherine? Catherine. Hi. Uh, in 1969, I was um, in third grade, and I had four brothers and sisters. And we had just recently moved to this area of Connecticut, my dad being in the Navy. And with my four brothers and sisters, I was neither the one who, like my brother Andrew, who could do or say anything he wanted, or the popular one like my sister, or the athletic one like my sister Laura, or the adorable one like my brother Thomas. I was just me, just nondescript me. And I was always tempted to be something dramatic. And for example, years later, I discovered that we were like one-eighth Jewish. So I told everyone that I was Jewish because I wanted to be a member of a persecuted people. <laughs> <laughs> that was, persecuted people are popular. <laughs> so, um, one, so there I am in third grade. And one day, um, my mother picks us up at the bus stop. Usually we had to walk. It was about a mile, and we'd have to walk back from the bus stop. But my mom picks us all up at the bus stop because she used to go to the church and drop my brother off 
for confirmation practice. I don't know what you had to practice, but you had to practice being confirmed. And um, then she was gonna circle back and we were gonna come home. So she did this, she goes down to the church and on our way back, in one of my more perceptive moments, I look out the station wagon window and I say, there's a barbecue at our house. And in fact, our house was on fire. <laughs> and um, what happened, it was it being that time in our nation's history, uh, the fire, fire engines were called, but all the fire engines were at the high school because there was a bomb scare. Um, so the fire engines were delayed, and then they went to the wrong street. And by the time that they arrived, the house was pretty much engulfed. And um, we had two dogs. We had Shadow, who was a wonderful, wonderful German Shepherd, and a very bad puppy, but she was an adult by now. And Ginger, a little Lhasa Apsa. And Shadow and Ginger were kind of an odd couple and somewhat inseparable. And um, while this house is burning down and people are coming from all over the place to watch my house getting burned down, um, the dogs are inside and um, we begin to realize that the dogs are inside and we're crying for my mom. Mom, do something, do something. And my mom is a nurse and she's trying to crawl into the house and she can't make it. And the women from the street are lining up to hold each other's ankles so that they can pull my mom out if she goes in too far. And suddenly my dog Shadow comes running out. And she comes running out and she, she's running so fast her ears are pinned back against her head. And she stops and she takes a deep breath and she turns around and she goes running back into the house. And she comes downstairs holding Ginger in her mouth. <laughs> and drops her at my mother's feet. And Ginger's not breathing, and my mom's a nurse, so she does what people in my family do. <laughs> she picks up the animal and she gives it mouth to mouth. <laughs> my dad had to do that for the goat once. Anyway. <laughs> and, um, the dog comes back to life. Well, needless to say, this has all been so dramatic. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is really kind of cool. <laughs> and I know that I'm not supposed to think this, but I'm so tempted to be really excited. <laughs> and um, so things are going crazy where we are, where it's just like people are outfitting a house for us and the whole neighborhood's pulling together. And it's just like, it's, it's just wonderful, but it's not really about me. And um, <laughs> so anyway, the next day we have to go to school, of course. And I go to school and um, I guess I, my recollection is we all had to meet up to have attendance taken in the playground. And I'm standing in line and my teacher's taking attendance and she calls out my, my name. And I say, here. And Cece Monaco goes, oh, you're alive. <laughs> and I said, this is the best day ever. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Phil Kushner, first-time storyteller, Phil Kushner. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm just visiting. Uh, I'm staying with a friend who has a house here, and I won't mention his name, but uh, he does like to indulge in apple cider and napalm. Wink, wink, you know, nudge, nudge. Uh, <laughs> this is the second time that he's uh, invited me up here. Uh, the first time was eight years ago, so you can see how much he enjoyed the pleasure of my company. <laughs> that <laughs> he likens to a visit from me to like jury duty, you know, once every eight years and hopefully more. But um, and I wasn't even sure if I was gonna come up because he's uh, he's a little annoying and and like I can feel I can feel the tension. Uh, 
when, when we talk, like, and he'll just say like innocuous things, like he'll be talking about baseball or show he watches or re reminiscing about friends that we, you know, know. And, um, but like the tone underneath is, I should have never let him in the house. <laughs> God, why, why did everyone else say no? And, and I'm sure it's just like all in my head, but I'm also sure that there's a little bit of truth to it too. And, you know, and then he tries to be hospitable. He's like, oh, I'm growing my own fresh, uh, fresh blueberries. And, and, you know, just pick some and eat them yourself. And at the same time, his dog's urinating on the bush. So, <laughs> I don't know. Coincidental? I don't know. But so, so the question is, then, why would I uh, drive seven hours in traffic uh, to come up here then, right? Is it, is it the peace and quiet or... The beaches and the ponds, eh, you know, is it? <laughs> is it having the chance to listen to a drunk guy and a wife beater talk about stealing money from the mob and almost getting whacked? A little bit, yeah, yeah. But really, it's, it's because the last time I was here, I, I found a place that has soft serve coffee ice cream. And, oh, you know it. And there's no, <laughs> and through like all my travels, anywhere that I've ever been, I've, I've never seen soft serve coffee ice cream in it, and it was delicious. And I have to tell you that I have, like my one weakness is ice cream, right? And, and I, I'm obsessed, I, I love it, it's a vice. And uh, I try to eat healthy, I try to stay in shape, but I will never turn down ice cream. And as a matter of fact, like when I went to sleepaway camp, my, my biggest memory, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, playing sports, the nice weather, certainly not, you know, the great friends I made. It was snack, it was snack time, right? And like every, like about like 1.30, they would like call snack and we would have to go like running to the snack bar. And, and like that was the most exciting thing. Ice is the cherry ice is on the double stick. Or uh, every now and then the red, white, and blue rocket pops or, uh, Chip witches, chocolate eggclairs, uh, the Dixie cups with the chocolate and vanilla mix that you had to eat with the wooden spoon and you hope, hope not to get a splinter in your tongue, but it was so worth it. And like those rare days when I thought like God was watching, looking down on me and, and he gave us a fudgesicle. Those, those were the best days, but those were like the best memories and I still think about it today. And I have cousins that live outside of Boston and every year the whole family gets together and uh, we go up there, and I don't, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I have, I have a 14-year-old cousin who's like a pervert. I'm not even kidding. Like, look at his search history on his iPod. <laughs> you, you know. It's disgusting. I didn't even know like German porn like that existed. I have a cheap uncle too that like, that like makes like some of us like we have to pretend like we're under 10 so like we can get the cheap menu, you know? But they have this one place in the neighborhood called Kimball's and it has great homemade ice cream. And you also know it, right? It's the best, cookies and cream and coffee ice cream, but like the hard coffee. And, and I love it, this is why I go up. And, and I have to get it every day, it doesn't matter how cold it is, it's totally worth it, I'm completely content, and, it's, and that's it. And, and it was the same thing of, of why I came up here, because I, over the last eight years, every now and then, just randomly, I would think about this like coffee soft serve ice cream. And it wasn't just soft serve, you know, just like the fact that it was coffee soft, it was good soft serve. Cause like you go to different places, right? And when they have like the chocolate and the vanilla or the swirl and soft serve, and it like comes out, but it never tastes like vanilla, it tastes like the machine that it comes out of, right? But this tastes like coffee, it's actually rich, coffee and it's creamy and it's soft and you don't you don't need to put any toppings on it I mean you can I'm not gonna turn that down but it's just really good coffee ice cream and that's why I gave into my temptation and I came up thank you thank you for listening to the mosquito story slam podcast the Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian and Caitlin Langstaff with theme music and editing by Jay Hagenbuckle. Find your next opportunity to join us in person by following us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more stories. Remember, tell your friends, take
take a chance and fight it live.